Well, this morning, I am continuing in a sermon series through the New Testament book known as Philippians, and it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had started in Philippi. Now, he's writing this from prison, and we've read going slowly through chapter one uh, on how he's been encouraging, uh, pouring out his affection towards his church, encouraging them towards love and unity, praying for them that they would have a wise and discerning love for each other. And encouraging them that even though he's in prison unjustly, that he knows God is at work. He knows that God is continuing to work and expand the gospel in his kingdom, even though he's in prison. This morning we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is one of the great passages of the New Testament. So we're going to read together this encouragement from Paul to the church at Philippi and consider what it has to say to us today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and pray that you would speak to our hearts. Help us to understand what this means to us today. Reveal yourself, Jesus, to us in a deeper way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So clearly in this passage, Paul is concerned about the unity of this church. He uses phrases like, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love. Be one in spirit and truth. He tells them, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. Consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. This is a tall order, right? This is a very tall order of what he's asking of this church. After all, we naturally look out for our own interests as we walk through this life. We routinely make decisions out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. We don't usually consider others better than ourselves or the needs of others more important than our own. Most of us, I would say, instinctively operate as if the world revolves around us. We try to accumulate wealth and pleasure and joy and find comfort for ourselves and for those that we love. And Just in case we're trying to follow this, our culture comes and is trying to convince us that the way to happiness is through authenticity, self-expression. Those are two of the highest values that our culture promotes, 
authenticity. You be you. You do you. Self-expression. No one can tell you what you can or cannot do. Think about it. What happens when you have an orchestra full of musicians who believe in self-expression? What happens when you're on a sports team where everyone just believes you do you? It's chaos. What happens when you have a world full of people who believe that self-expression and authenticity are the highest values? Chaos. But, just for a a minute, imagine a community that was like this one, like the one that Paul is describing here. Imagine that you're part of a community where everyone looks out for the needs of everyone else. Where people naturally lay down their own self-interest to make sure that others are cared for and lifted up. Imagine a world where the Russians look out for the interests of the Ukrainians. Where those who are born with resources and means are concerned about those who were not born with resources and means. Imagine a world where husbands and wives just naturally consider each other better than themselves and look out for each other's interests above their own. It would be an orchestra where everyone plays in harmony. A sports team where everyone is playing together in unison. It would be heaven on earth. But it just seems impossible to achieve. And, and no matter how many people are out there just saying, hey, be kind to each other. Do random acts of kindness and be nice. It just seems impossible. Telling people to try harder just doesn't work. Our world is just, again, full of self-interest, full of people just looking out for number one. So where are we going to find the motivation to live like this, the power to live this out, to actually put the needs of others above ourselves, to create a community where everyone looks out for each other. In this passage, Paul doesn't just say, do this because it's the right thing to do. He says, look to the example of Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Look how he lived. Look how he died. And in that, he says, you're going to find the motivation. You're going to find the power to create this kind of community. So what is it that we learn from this passage about what Jesus did and how this gospel, how this good news of what Jesus did gives us the help that we need to achieve this kind of loving unity? There's three things I want to talk about that I see in this passage. The gospel gives us these things that help us achieve loving unity. The first of all, first of all, it gives us a giver. It shows us a giver who eases our fears. First thing that we need, if we're going to create a community where we look out for the needs of others above ourselves, where we elevate others and aren't as concerned about our own needs and wants, is that we need to know there's a giver who eases our fears. So Paul tells us that Jesus was in very nature God, but he became a man. And he was willing to humble himself all the way to death on a cross. That it wasn't just some random tragedy that Jesus died on a cross, but there was a purpose to it. Romans chapter 5, 6 through 10, Paul puts it this way. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There's a lot in that passage, but 
the gist of it, he's saying, again, that Jesus' death was not some random tragedy, but it was the plan of God to save us from sin, the sin that had separated us from a holy God, our rebellion, falling short of his holy standard, that we were separated from a holy God and nothing we could do could save ourselves. And so Jesus came, the eternal son of God came becoming a man to die for us sinners, he said. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. R.C. Sproul put it this way, the glory of the gospel is this, the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. John Stott put it this way, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. That the bad news of our sin is that we're separated from a holy God and facing eternal separation from him because of our sin because of our rebellion. But God, out of his love for us, sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to take the penalty that we deserved. And Paul knew that it was his sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the Romans, the Jews, it was him. Jesus died for him. Again, as John Stott put it, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. This is the gospel, Jesus dying for your sins to make you right with God. So how does that help us become a people who are unified in love, who elevate the needs of others above ourselves, who don't look to our own interests but to the interests of others? Again, I said that we need to know that there is a giver who will ease our fears Nothing will give you peace of mind like the gospel. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8, 31 to 32. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Can you follow the argument there, the logic? He's saying, okay, you were his enemy. You were the enemy of God. You were under his wrath. You deserved condemnation. And when you were his enemy, what did he do to you? He sacrificed his son for you. He gave his best. When you were his enemy, he gave you his best. Now that you are his beloved son or daughter, will he not graciously give you everything that you need? That as you look to the cross, you see that that is the love of God for you. That when you were his enemy, he died for you. Now that you're his beloved son or daughter, can you trust that he will give you what you need? He will provide what you need. There's a giver who eases our fears. We can be generous. We can look out for the needs of others. We can elevate others above ourselves because we know there's someone looking out for us, right? I mean, if, if, if you don't know there's anyone looking out for you, then you've got to look out for number one because no one else is looking out for you. But if you know that God of the universe gave his son when you were his enemy and now you're his beloved son or beloved daughter and he will provide everything that you need, then that eases your fears. It allows you to be generous. It allows you to be this kind of person that Paul is talking about. Because you know that God is caring for you. Again, this is what Paul said. Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't need to be so anxious about my own needs and interests because I know that the God of the universe is looking out for me. And so I can be generous. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to be generous and he puts it this way. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So, you know, bold words, but he is basically claiming that as you are looking to see how I can meet the needs of others, God will make sure you have what you need in order to do that. God is looking out for you so that you can look out for others. You can put the needs and interests of others above yourself because God is looking out for your needs and your interests. As Jesus put it, Matthew six thirty one to 34, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can you imagine living this way? Can you imagine living this way? Truly believing that these words are, are, are a promise. Can you imagine the freedom and the peace that would come if you actually believed these words? Because I know you, many of you have heard these words in your head, but you don't yet believe these words in your heart. That Jesus tells you, if you concern yourself with seeking first his kingdom, you worry about loving God, loving your neighbor. You worry about how I can be generous to others. He says, I will take care of your needs. Do you believe this? Again, trying to think this through. How do we become a community that is that kind of community, that has that kind of loving unity? I think we all need to know that there is a giver, there is a father who is generous to us who is looking out for us, who will take care of our needs so that we don't need to be so consumed with our own self-interest, but that we can trust him and then we can look, how can we serve and love others? Second thing I think that we need and what the gospel gives us to help us achieve loving unity is this. We need an identity that settles our spirit. We need an identity that'll just... Bring peace to our spirit. Again, let's go back to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So once again, Paul is encouraging this Philippian church to be united, to love each other. And to do that, he points them to the example of Jesus. That Jesus was in very nature God, but he came down, took the form of a man to come and live as a servant and die on a cross, to give his life for us. Again, that the testimony of the gospel is that we were so wicked, so sinful, that we could not save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. Romans three twenty two to 24, there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Or as Jesus put it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why don't you read that one with me? Can we read this John three sixteen together? Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that? What does this do to your identity? If you truly believe these words, what does it do? This in Romans 3 that we just read. First of all, it should humble you recognizing that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none of you can make yourselves right with God on the basis of what you've done or haven't done on the basis of your own spiritual resume. Nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save you. So who are you to elevate yourself above anyone else? All have sinned. We're all in the same boat. We all are in need of a Savior. On the one hand, it humbles us. But on the other hand, It lifts us up. It lifts us up to know that, yes, nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us, but Jesus willingly gave his life for you because he loves you that much. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. At the same time, this is what happens to your identity when you believe the gospel. You're, on the one hand, humbled. You can't elevate yourself above anyone else. You know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And at the same time, it lifts you up to know that you're loved, to give you this confidence that your identity is secure. That the God who knows you through and through and knows everything about you did not reject you but died for you because he loves you that much. Paul knew this. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, he said this about himself. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy 
so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see that humble confidence in that passage? He says, I am, I'm the worst of sinners. But he's not saying that in some sort of like, oh, I'm so terrible and just, you know, he's, he's acknowledging the truth. I'm, I'm the worst of sinners. I was a persecutor, a violent man, but God saved me. He loved me and he called me to his service. And I praise him for that. There's this humble confidence. That's the kind of identity he has because of the gospel. It's not high self-esteem. It's not low self-esteem. It's just God-esteem. I am who he says I am. Brendan Manning in his book, The Signature of Jesus, put it this way. He said, on the night of December 13th, during what began as a long and lonely hour of prayer, I heard in faith Jesus Christ say, for love of you, I left my father's side. I came to you who ran from me, fled me, who did not want to hear my name. For love of you, I was covered with spit, punched, beaten, and affixed to the wood of the cross. These words are burned on my life. Whether I am in a state of grace or disgrace, elation or depression, that night of fire quietly burns on. I looked at the crucifix for a long time, figuratively saw the blood streaming from every pore of his body and heard the cry of his wounds. This isn't a joke. It is not a laughing matter to me that I have loved you. The longer I looked, the more I realized that no man has ever loved me and no one ever could love me as he did. I went out of the cave. I stood on the precipice and I shouted into the darkness, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind to have loved me so much? I learned that night what a wise old man had told me years earlier. Only the one who has experienced it can know what the love of Jesus Christ is. Once you have experienced it, nothing else in the world will seem more beautiful or desirable. So what does this have to do, again, with Paul's words, encouragement to create this kind of loving community that elevates the needs of others above our own? I think when, when you don't know what your identity is, when you don't know that you're loved, when you don't know your value, then you go out into the world looking for that, searching for that, looking for others to validate you, to give you life worth and value and meaning. You want people to see you as important, to see you as beautiful, to see you as successful or powerful or good. You go out empty, looking for others to fill you, looking to see what others can do for you. You can't ever create a community of loving unity when you're that way, when you're empty, when you're looking to others, what they can do for you. How can you elevate the needs of others above your own when you're so needy? But in the gospel, you're given this kind of identity, this humble confidence. You know you're loved, period. End of sentence, you're loved. Nothing's going to change that. You know that you're so valuable that Jesus gave his life for you. The eternal son of God gave his life for you. 
You know that you're valuable. You know that you're loved. You know you belong. The more that that identity becomes your identity, the more that you can go out into this world not looking for what you can get from other people, but looking to give, looking to love, looking to serve, because your identity is secure. Again, Paul tells them, look to the example of Jesus. Look to him. Look to him on the cross. Look at the father giving his son and rest knowing that there is a father, a giver who loves you and cares for you. Look to Jesus dying for you when you did not deserve it. And find there an identity that will settle your spirit. And then lastly, the gospel gives us a love that transforms our heart. It gives us a love, a humble love that transforms our heart. Let me read one more time, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He wants them to know that Jesus is in very nature God, Hebrews 1.3 also says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John 1.1, In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Divine. But he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. But he made himself nothing. He chose the path of obedient humiliation all the way to death. And don't gloss over that because, yes, God could have become human and and took the form of a king, right? He could have come as a powerful person that everyone would bow down to. But instead, he took the form of a servant, giving up his rights, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. If you're unfamiliar with crucifixion, the cross was the ultimate kind of humiliation, that the Romans had invented to inflict on the worst of criminals as a deterrent to others. Most people who were crucified were stripped naked, nailed wrists, ankles, feet to the cross like this, humiliated for all to see. If the torture wasn't bad enough, right? The physical torture. The physical torture, the emotional shame and torture. In fact, the word cross was an obscenity in those days in polite Roman society. It wasn't to be uttered in conversation. That's what we're talking about. Not just that God became flesh and became a king to be worshipped, but he humbled himself, humiliated himself out of love for you. And even in the Jewish law, to be hung on a tree, hung on a cross, was seen as a curse in Deuteronomy 21. If a man guilty of a capital offense, is put to death and his body is hung on a tree. You must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land your God is giving you as an inheritance. 
And Paul picks up on this in Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. Do you get this? Do you understand that when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins, it's not just him giving his life. It's him choosing the most humiliating way possible. Allowing himself to be publicly shamed and humiliated. To take the penalty that you deserve. To show how deep his love is for you. That he'd be willing to go to that depth to save you. To let you know that you are loved. That there is nothing beneath him. That when you were his enemy, that's the length that he would go to love you. Is there anything that you can do now as his beloved son or daughter that would ever cause him to reject you? Nothing was beneath Jesus. Think back to the Last Supper. Right before he was betrayed and crucified, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This was the job of the most menial servant to wash the disgusting feet that had been walking in sandals through the dirty streets. And Jesus says, do you understand what I'm doing here? Nothing is beneath me. Nothing is beneath you when it comes to loving another person. Be willing to take on the most menial of tasks, the most dirty, disgusting thing out of love for each other. Elevate the needs of others above your own. Look out for the interests of others. This is our God. Do you understand that? How incredible this is. This is our God that would leave the comfort of heaven and not only come down to be worshipped as some king, but to come down and to become a servant, to be humiliated. Nothing is beneath us. If you are his disciple, nothing is beneath you. Love means cleaning the litter box. It means giving others the best seat, the best piece of pie, taking the worst parking spot, getting up at night with the baby, making the coffee in the morning, bringing in your neighbor's trash can, choosing to forgive instead of punish. Nothing is beneath you. If nothing was beneath him, and he is the eternal son of God who deserves all the worship, then nothing is beneath you. The path to greatness and exaltation goes through humility and service. Think of Mark 9, 33 to 35. The disciples came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. 
Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. The path to greatness goes through humble service. And just, again, pay attention to what humility is according to this passage. That Jesus is the perfect example of humility, but sometimes when we think of humility, we think it means like I'm supposed to think I'm, well, you know, I'm such a terrible person. I'm, I'm humble. I think the, the lowest. But Jesus was perfect in every way. And the humility that they're talking about in this passage was that he was willing to take the lowest place. That was his humility. He was willing to be the servant of all, to elevate the needs of everyone else above his own. Some people have put it this way which I like this definition, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not about thinking that you're some terrible human being. It's, it's not even thinking about yourself. It's thinking about others. You're not concerned about your own feelings, your own needs, your own wants. You're concerned about the needs and feelings and wants of others. Humility is thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. That humility is about, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 here, thinking not only of your own interests, but the interests of others. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Being, being willing to take the lowest place to elevate others. If the eternal Son of God was willing to lay down his life for you, to be humiliated in order to love and save you, then the best way that you can honor him is to trust that he will take care of your needs, that your identity is secure, that you are loved, and then to go out and love as he has loved you, to serve as he has served you, to not be concerned about your needs because you know as you seek first his kingdom that he will take care of your needs. That is what the gospel gives us. That is why Paul encouraged them, look to the cross and look to Jesus. Because you see there a giver who eases your fears, who will give you everything that you need. You gain an identity that will settle your spirit. You don't need to go out into the world looking for what others can do for you, but you can look, go out looking what you can do for others. And you find there a love that will transform your heart. Can you imagine what our world would be like if this was the kind of community we had can you imagine what the church would be like if that's the kind of community we had? Just a collection of people who are looking to the interests of others because they know there's a God who loves them. Let me pray. Lord, we confess to you our self-centeredness, our selfish ambition, we confess to you the fears that are in our hearts that if we don't look out for ourselves that we're going to go broke, that we're not going to be able to take care of ourselves. We confess to you, Lord, that we have looked to the things of this world to give us an identity and a people of this world to convince our hearts that we're loved, that we're valuable. 
We confess that to you this morning, Lord. And we look to the cross at Jesus dying for our sins, humiliating, being humiliated for us. And we see you, Father, who gave his son, gave his best when we were your enemy, and we trust you, Lord. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to trust you that you will give us everything we need. Help us to gain an identity, Lord, that is secure, that knows that we're loved. And above all, Lord, transform our hearts that we might love as you have loved us, that we might be truly humble, not thinking of ourselves, not worried about our needs and our wants and our reputation, but concerned about others. Please, Lord, pour out your spirit in this place. Transform our hearts by your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.